Open up in your Bibles to Amos chapter 9. If you're not there, look with me at Amos chapter 9, verse 1. It says, I saw the Lord. We're in a season in Amos where he's got these visions. We saw last week how we had these four different visions, two of one kind, two of another. This is kind of a fifth vision. But here he doesn't see anything the Lord's wanting him to see. He sees the Lord himself. And he sees the Lord standing beside the altar. Now this is not probably the altar in Jerusalem. You remember Amos is from Jerusalem, from Judah in that area, and he's been sent by God to Israel, to the northern tribes who have left the promises that God gave to King David, left the promises that God gave to the fathers, and said, we're going to strike out on our own. Why can't we just be like the Philistines? Why can't we be like Syria? Why can't we be like Edom? Why can't we be like Egypt? They don't have Yahweh. They seem like they're fine. And so these northern tribes left, and, but, you know, for nostalgia's sake, they, they, got a, you know, they got a temple to Dagon, they got a temple to Baal, they got a temple to Asherah, they got a temple to Moloch. But for nostalgia's sake, they threw up a couple temples to Yahweh. And so they've got some, you know, some officially state-sanctioned Yahweh priests and Yahweh temples and Yahweh worship, the God of Israel. And one of them's at Bethel. That's really the central temple uh, in the service ostensibly of Yahweh, right? It's people who have denied his promises, don't want to hear his word, right? We just saw in Amos 7, they send Amos away with the word of the Lord. We don't want to hear the word of the Lord anymore, but they still want to have their worship times, you know? Because, right, you sing together, you feel a little better. You hear a nice homily, it gives you some practical advice. It's all fine. It's not going to change much, but it's nice. And it reminds me of the good old days. So that's what they've got up there in Bethel. And they've been offering animals on this altar to God that he's not looking at. He's not receiving. And he's sent prophet after prophet after prophet to say, knock this stuff off. And then all of a sudden, in the most surprising and terrifying turn of events, the Lord himself appears at the altar. But not with a word of like, oh, thank you. Right? He doesn't fill the temple with his glory like he did in Exodus and Leviticus. He doesn't fill the temple with his glory because he's receiving the sacrifice and, and delighted by it. He shows up here and he issues a word of judgment. He says, I'm going to put an end to this nonsense and I'm going to kill every last sinner and put an end to all this sin. Today, Amos chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, the main idea... This is, uh, this is going to be mirrored in the second part of Amos 9, but the main idea is that God's judgment is going to be total, it's going to be exact, it's going to be final. Total, exact, and final. Look with me at Amos chapter 9, verse 1. Those of you who are Bible wonks and are familiar with your Old Testament, I want you to listen in this first verse for interesting, maybe, connections to other stories. And I want to paint the picture of what Amos is describing here. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, strike the capitals, strike the, the tops, the roof line, the pillars, and uh, until the thresholds shake. Like bring the hammer down on this thing so hard that, that the whole place is shaken and shatter this on the heads of all the people. All of those worshipers there, put an end to them. And those who are left of those, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. Now, this, this just sounds like kind of bad, typical prophet language, right? But I want to, uh, to stir up in your mind a couple stories that Amos is using here to convey the, the terror, the darkness, the fury of this moment. 
And these would have been stories that every young man was super familiar with in Israel. Because they're some of my favorite stories, and I'm not an Israelite boy. The first story is the story of Samson. How many of you are familiar with the story of Samson? Right? Samson is uh, way back in the day of Judges. He is, uh, he is God's strong man. Right? He's, he's going to judge on behalf of God the people of the Philistines who are oppressing the Israelites. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but uh, needless to say, Samson famously gets himself into some trouble. He gets, ends up getting captured by the Philistines. His eyes are put out and he's made a slave uh, working in their dungeons. But a couple years go by, and they have, uh, they're having a huge festival in honor of Dagon. And what better way to honor their god, Dagon, than to drag out this fallen Hebrew hero as a, as a really a, a trophy of the foolishness and weakness of Yahweh. Look at this guy. This is Yahweh's judge on us. And they bring him up, and they chain him in front of, a, of this huge arena of worshipers of Dagon. And they mock him, and they throw stuff at him. And, and he says, you remember the story, he says to the, the, he's blind, he says to the attendant who's helping him, he says, can I lean against the pillars? And he stands between the pillars that are supporting the whole roof. And he says, Lord, just, I know I've screwed it up, but give me one last, one last burst of strength here. And he pushes the pillars down, and what happens, Right? It says that he killed more Philistines in that moment than he had killed in the previous years of judging the Philistines. He struck the capitals and the threshold shook. And everything that was lifted up in that temple came down on the temples of, uh, on the worshipers of Dagon in that moment. And Amos is pulling on that image and he says, you know, Samson, God's going to come in like Samson over Israel. He's going to treat the Israelites and their worship like Samson treated Dagon and their worshipers. The Lord is going to stand against Israel with the strength, with the fury, with the terror of Samson. But you notice the second half of verse 1, it says that those who are left of them I'll kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. Now this goes to a lesser known story because it's actually even more gruesome and, and grotesque. And that's the story of Jehu, who was Jeroboam II, the king that Amos is prophesying against. It was actually his great-grandpa. Now, Jehu's a lesser-known story. Anybody know the story of Jehu? A couple people. It, it's a, it's a, starring Liam Neeson, if you can imagine this kind of scene. This is, this is the story of Jehu. So Jehu is, an, is a general in the Israelite army, and he works for now the worst dynasty of Israelite kings. Uh, king Omri, King Zimri, King Ahab, remember Jezebel and Ahab? It's a, it's a dynasty of the absolute most unjust, immoral, idolatrous kings in Israel. And God plucks Jehu out and he says, I want you to put things right, Jehu. I want you to put an end to that dynasty and their evils. And so Jehu, who is a military man, he gets his swords, he gets his, his cohort and his troop, and he goes on a rampage and he slaughters, the, he puts an end to the entire Amri dynasty, the entire house of Ahab and kills all of them. And then he says something. He says, he publishes an announcement to the land. He says, every prophet of Baal, we're going to gather together and we're going to have such a, such a festival celebrating and honoring Baal that has never been in this land. You thought Omri and Zimri and Ahab loved Baal? I love him with all my heart. 
And if you prophets and priests of Baal aren't present on this day at this time, you will be killed. And so he assembles all the prophets of Baal in the entire land. And they all go into the, the great big house of Baal. And he says, you know, we're, we're, we're going to do this. And he gathers all his guys around and he, he says, strap your swords on and stand at the entrances. And we're going to walk back and forth across this place and we're going to kill every last one of them. If you let one escape, it's going to be your life for theirs. No, one are going to, no one's going to escape. We're going to go at him with the sword and we're going to put an end to this. And so Amos is using these visions of two of the most dark and violent and gruesome and startling and terrifying characters in the Old Testament to say this is how your God, this is how the God is going to be towards you. He is going to come against you like Samson. He's going to strike you like Jehu struck the prophets of Baal. He's going to bring your false worship, your idolatry, your immorality down on your head like Samson brought the house down on the worshipers of Dagon. He's going to slay all of you in your idolatry and injustice and immorality like Jehu slayed the prophets of Baal. You're no better than the prophets of Baal. You're no better than the worshipers of Dagon. And God is going to come against you. So they would have heard chapter 9, verse 1, and they would have been shocked. They would have been terrified. And justly so. Because what we read is that nowhere is going to be safe when God brings His judgment. Nowhere is going to be safe. No one is going to escape. Read with me the end of verse 1 and on. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I'll bring them down. Does that remind you guys of anything? Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I go from your presence? If I, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, you are there. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, there your hand shall lead me and guide me and bless me. But now he's evoking that sweet and dear psalm to say no matter where you run to, no matter where you think you've gotten yourself, from there I'll bring you down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, I'll command a serpent and it'll bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Nowhere is going to be safe. No one is going to escape. If you look down in verses 9 and 10, there's an image here of a precise judgment. Behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. He's using an image here of sifting wheat out. And, and in that sieve, the pebbles or other junk would stay and the wheat would drop. And he says, not a single sinner is going to escape the sifting. This judgment is going to be total, exact, and final. It's going to be a precise judgment that is going to be exactly perfect and right. Every sin is going to be exactly, precisely judged. Every single one. Now this is, going to, this is a really important thing and I want you to latch on to this. 
That the judgment of God is going to be, as you would expect God's judgment to be, absolute, perfect, exact. No sin is going to escape. No sin is going to escape and no sinner is going to get away. It is total, exact, and final. How are you doing with this so far? You okay with this? I mean, I think when we, when we think about it, uh, even though viscerally on the surface of it, we're like, well, hang on, let's just take a look at things. But, but truthfully, like, what injustice do you want to let off the hook? What, what injustice is going to be okay? Well, I don't want to see this happen, but this, is, this one's fine. What lie is fine? What greed and theft is going to be okay? Right? This, is actually, this is actually what we want. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, let your will be done on earth like it's done in heaven. What we're saying is rectify all of these injustices. Put an end to this idolatry and immorality. I don't want to live in this place anymore. I want every sin judged. I want no sinner to get away. This is actually what we want. Although we also kind of want not this for ourselves. This is the world we want to live in, but we don't want to be subjected to it. It's an interesting dynamic here. But I just want us to be honest before we're too like, oh, God's so full of judgment and anger. Well, we kind of love this. This is what we're praying for. Every time we're praying our Father, we're praying this. We're saying do justice absolutely and completely. We want this, but we also want not this. And so look with me at chapter 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. No sinner gets away, no sin escapes, yet God will keep his prior promises. So in the story of Amos, Israel had broken their covenant that they made with God at Sinai, and God is promising judgment on them. But before Sinai, there was a prior set of promises made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the fathers of Israel. And that promise, Amos is saying, is just as sure. That word of promise is just as sure as this word of judgment, but that word of promise was before this one. In the story of God's promise, the story of God's grace actually lasts longer, is bigger than the story of God's judgment and God's wrath. In, in the words of one of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, he says, the, the darkness, despair, judgment is not the last word, but the next to last. And the last word belongs to the grace of God. The book of Amos ends with a description of that day on which the promises of grace come to be fulfilled. And it's greater than, it's bigger than, it lasts longer than the judgments. Now we just talked about how exact and how total and how final the judgments are, and now we're being confronted with a grace that is larger. This grace is larger. We're talking about excessive blessings beyond the exact judgments. Imagine, a, you know, like when you look at a spoon, I can't remember which, which side you look at it, and you're like upside down in it. 
Right, so imagine a giant spoon that's also kind of a funhouse mirror, so it makes the, thing, the image look bigger and upside down. That's the first part of Amos 9 and the second part. We just, we just saw this extraordinary picture of judgment, and now we're going to see that same thing enlarged and flips upside down in the picture of grace that fulfills God's bigger promises to his people and to this world. The promises of grace that day as he begins in verse 11 are marked by, marked by a number of things. They're marked by restoration. In that day, I'll raise up the booth of David that's fallen. I'll repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The first mark of that day is going to be restoration. Things are going to be put back. This is the promise that we read about throughout the New Testament. The same idea in the New Testament, in that day of fulfillment, when all these things come to be true, this same word, the same idea is talked about as, is translated as restoration, is translated as being united, being equipped, being mended. And the image that we talked about a lot when we were studying the book of Galatians recently, where Paul talks about the only thing that matters is new creation, the new thing that God is doing to put things back together. And this is the first mark of that day. The first mark is restoration. And the second thing, verse 12, is fulfillment. I'm going to rebuild all this stuff that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Things are not just going to be put back. Things are going to be made better. Things are going to be restored. Things are going to be fulfilled. What verse 12 describes is, is the promise given all the way back in the beginning that all the nations are going to be brought into this blessing. Because it's not just enough for Israel to enjoy a, a modest amount of favor and grace and mercy. They, the whole idea is for that to spill out, for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So everywhere you go, you're safe. Everywhere you go, there's more joy and glory to be experienced. So we see restoration, we see fulfillment. It's interesting Verses 11 and 12 are quoted by the apostles in Acts 15. Amos 9, 11 and 12 is quoted by James and Peter and Paul in Acts 15 over the question of whether Gentiles get to come into the promises of Israel and stay Gentiles or do they have to become Israelites? And the apostles looked at Amos 9 and they say, no, this is part of the fulfillment that the blessings that we get that restore us to God flow out to them. This is part of the fulfillment of what God's doing. The third thing that marks this day of grace is redemption. Verses 13 to 14. And we're going to look at two things here. Behold, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine. They shall make gardens and eat the fruit. So things are going to be put back together. Things are going to be made better and things are going to be good again. You know what, you, what I notice in these two verses, one of the main things is the reoccurring reference to wine. Did you notice that? They're really excited about wine because wine now is a mark of celebration. Wine now is a mark of grace and gratitude. Whereas previously, every other time it's mentioned in Amos, wine is a mark of the excesses of affluence. Wine is a mark of injustice. You get a bowl of wine, you suck it down, and then you go do some bad things. That's why wine is referenced 
earlier in Amos, but now wine is the mark of the presence of God. Things are, things are redeemed. Things are made good again rather than being misused and made bad. We also see in verse 13 a picture of flourishing. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. What does that mean? So, th- so imagine the scene, right? Think about this. What's a plowman doing, right? He's got the plow, cattle, and he sets off in the morning to plow the dirt. He's plowing the stuff, right? He has to slow down because there's somebody up in the way. Who's up in the way? The reaper's up in the way. Why is the reaper in the way? Think about this. When's the reaper doing the reaping? In, in Wisconsin, when's, when do the reapers start? Right? In the fall. When does the plowman plow? In the spring. So what's going on here? He's saying there's going to be such a harvest that they're still reaping when it's time to plow. So not only is the wine made good again, but we're, we're stepping into a time that Paul will talk about in the New Testament as a, a, a much more. Much more. A time of flourishing. And then it concludes in verse 15, I'll plant them on their land and they'll never again be uprooted out of the land I've given them. It's this time of permanence. They don't have to worry anymore. No enemy outside of them is going to come and, and take them into exile. No impurity in them is going to call forth God's judgment or failure among them is going to separate them from the blessings and favor of God. So we just saw in, in Amos 9 two wildly different visions. Two wildly different moments. This total exact awful judgment and now this overwhelming excessive beautiful blessing. How are God's people going to go from one to the other? How are they going to go from judgment to joy? If no sinner escapes, who gets this dripping sweet wine? If no sinner escapes, how is this going to happen? Look with me at verse 11. Who gets this? It says in verse 11, In that day I'll raise up the booth of David. The booth of David. What a weird phrase, right? <laughs> what does that mean? It means the, uh, it's a reference to like the, the booth is the tent, which is a reference to the house. It's saying I'm going to raise up the house of David. I'm going to raise, which is a way of saying to the people of Israel, they would have understood this exactly, even though it seems kind of weird phraseology for us. God's saying, I'm going to honor my promise. I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to fulfill my covenant. My plan is going to come to be just as I have told you all along. So who is going to get all of these good things and escape the judgment and get this hope, but those who have put their hope in God's Word, in His plan, in His covenant, in His promises. Those who have put their hope in Him will escape. But I want to explain the logic of this now because right, God's total, exact, final judgment had to fall. There can be no escape from that. It had to fall on all sin and every sinner. Exact justice done exactly and as we've already established, we're, we're for that. We want that. That's good. But how can that happen so that any sinner has any hope? How can that happen? So who can that fall on so other sinners still get hope? Who can that wrath and that judgment fall on 
that leaves sinners with hope? And this is such a powerful question through the Old Testament. Because every time, every time in the Old Testament, the story brings, uh, comes to a point where there's an opportunity for some godly, holy man or woman, some, some saint, some king, some prophet or priest to, to be a substitute for sinners. Every time there's a moment like that, they back away. Just like we saw last week in Amos, in Amos 7. Remember the first two visions of judgment and Amos says, oh Lord, Jacob's so small, please save him. And the Lord relents. But then when the Lord calls him up and says, hey, here's the plumb line. Look at, look at, his, look at the house of Israel according to the, the six foot level. What do you think? Amos can't say anything. He shuts up. He's not going to do it. He's not going to be a substitute for Israel. He's not going to stand in that place. Because he, just like Moses and David and, and all of and Abraham, everybody before him, they know that they cannot stand either. They're sinners with sins. So who's going to do it, right? Who's going to do it? We need somebody who doesn't have sin. That's right. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is, he is the answer to the question Amos 9 is proposing. He is the answer to this situation. He is the only non-sinner who's ever lived. Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ was tempted, tested in every way like us, yet he never sinned in response to that. He never, ever sinned. And so because Jesus is the only non-sinner, he's the only one who could escape this judgment. Right? He could stand back and watch every sinner and, and sin get judged and say amen. But he doesn't. Jesus is the only one who could become a Savior. He's the only one who could do this. And he did. Remember we talked about last week how in the, in the story of the sacrificial system of, of Israel... They, they had these lambs and goats and, and other stuff that they're, they're slaying on, on behalf of sin. But all of that, they all knew this, all of that pointed to the sacrificial man, the lamb who would come from God, who would take their sins and apply his blood to their account to wash away their sins. Well, how could he do that? How could he do that? Where is he, the one non-sinner, going to be from? Well, it's in, it's in the description, right? He's going to be from God who is the righteous judge. He knows exactly what is needed for judgment to fall. He knows exactly the amount of sins. He knows exactly the number and kind of sinners. Jesus, when He comes, Jesus is the righteous requirement of judgment. Jesus is the right-sized sacrifice for all of us. And it is by the enormity of His eternal glory that Jesus can atone for every last sinner's every last sin. This is so important this morning as we're building an understanding of what Amos 9 holds out. For you to understand that what Amos 9 requires, Jesus fulfills. I want, you to, I want to belabor this point a moment so that we understand what Jesus did on the cross for us. Again, in the author of Hebrews' words, he says, Jesus entered once for all. Once for all. He did it once. It applied to all. He entered into the holy place by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption for us. 
A few verses later, Jesus appeared once for all. Once He came for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. Once for all. One sacrifice, all sin. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest daily stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he then sat down at the right hand of God. It's because it's done. This is what the author of Hebrews is emphasizing. Once for all. You get that? Once for all. Every sin of every kind to every degree of every person who trusts in Jesus has been judged. Every sin of every kind of every degree of every person who trusts in Jesus has been judged. That sin has been judged It is done. Jesus took the judgment totally, exactly, finally, and that's the end of it. Like he said, it's finished now. It's finished and done. And so I want you to understand that the the point of Amos 9 for us who now stand on this side of Jesus' work is that the judgment, this judgment and this blessing are ours through Jesus Christ. This judgment is ours. This judgment is ours. The gospel, the good news message of Jesus, is the paper declaring our exoneration of all sins, once for all. Paul describes it this way in Colossians 2. He says, God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. (laughs) He says, it's as if there was a big paper full of Every sin of yours, past, present, and future. And God handled it by nailing it to the cross in Christ. Every sin of every kind to every degree has been paid in full forever. You've got to understand this. You've got to absolutely get this. This is the point. Amos 9, friends, is trying to describe a judgment. It's trying to describe an extraordinary judgment where no sin escapes and no sinner gets away. That is the judgment that falls on Christ. That is the judgment that Jesus takes. And so if you have put your faith in the booth of David, if you have put your faith in that word, That is a judgment that will never touch you. That is a judgment that doesn't touch you. Don't let it. Now, I know that we all struggle with guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are kind of, in a sense, a a healthy response to sin, to foolishness. But they are toxic if they are absorbed and they accumulate. And the actual function of them in the design of God is to to chase sinners to the cross and chase us to worship Jesus in gratitude and joy. Don't let that judgment touch you because Jesus 
paid it all. But now this morning, I want to end our time in verses 11 to 15 of Amos 9. Because that's where we live. We who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we live in that day. We live in that day. We live after verses 1 to 10 have fallen on Christ on the cross. We live in verses 11 to 15. All of these blessings, I want you to understand, all of the blessings are ours because all of the judgment was Christ's. That's how these sides work together. You've got to understand the enormity, the exactitude, the finality of the judgment that fell on Christ so that you can appreciate the excessive nature of the blessings we have in him. All this judgment is ours and this blessing is ours. What Jesus earned and deserved through his righteousness, through his obedience, through his suffering and death, what he deserved, he got and he gives it to us. Hey, if he gives it to you, you got it. When Jesus says it is finished, for Christians, that's not the end. That's the beginning of something else. It's the end of one thing and the beginning of another. We may be tempted to look at the promises of God, to look at the the things that Scripture says about a life with the Spirit, life on this side of what Jesus has done, and it's like we're looking through glass, like a little urchin looking through the glass of a bakery. And you see, you know, walking past that section of, you know, pick and save, and you're just like, ha. <laughs> and you think, you look at the promises of God, and you look at what you deserve. And you know a little bit about what you deserve, and it's sure not that, you know, beautiful cake or all those, right? It's not, that's not, you don't deserve those promises. I heard a, a sweet expression yesterday that is, Kind of awesome and kind of baloney. Uh, this, this person said, uh, I don't ask God for anything. I just thank him for everything. Now, doesn't that sound great? It sounds like that, you're going to see that on like a, uh, a blanket somewhere, right? But it's baloney. That's not what God wants at all. He wants you to thank him for everything and ask him for everything. Because he's trying to give you everything. Right? Instead of imagining what you deserve relative to all of those baked goods, imagine what the baker's son deserves relative to all those baked goods. Imagine how the baker looks at his son's relationship with these. Right, Children who've been around when your mom's making cakes or whatever, right? you get so many, you get all of the scraps, you get the first try, you get like, try this cake out, oh, that didn't work good, try this cake out. You know, this is why the baker's son's always walking around like this, right? Because they're stuffed on all that goodness. And this is what God wants to do with us. Imagine what you think God thinks. Imagine what God thinks Jesus deserves. Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, we have been blessed by God in Christ. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heaven. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven. Restoration, redemption, fulfillment, flourishing, forever. I want you to understand this relationship of judgment to blessing so you know how much you have in Jesus Christ, so you don't miss out on any of it. Right? However complete God's judgments are, His blessings on you now are more. 
And so if you're still in Amos, look with me again at Amos chapter 9, verse 13. This is such a beautiful image, and I want it to stay with you as we conclude our study of the book of Amos in our time this morning. When in verse 13, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. I hear to us today a kind of an invitation. An invitation to harvest. Right again, that picture of the plow, of the, of the plow having to slow down and stop and wait because the reapers are still reaping. Because the harvest that has come in is so abundant. It's so big. You know, it's been a while since many of us have lived in an agrarian culture, so um, not that I've lived in one recently, but I read books about it. And the harvest time is, of course, the best time of the year. Right? The, the harvest is the best time. The harvest is what everyone hopes for. I mean, almost every day I'm praying, oh, you know, you who supply seed to the sower and bread for, for food, would you supply and multiply our seed for sowing and increase the harvest of our righteousness? The harvest is what we're praying for and hoping for. It's the best time. But it's also the busiest time. You're up earlier than normal. You're out later than normal. You're working harder than normal. Harvest is the absolute busiest time. It is hard work, but if you want life, you want that harvest. Now what we're harvesting as Christians is is what Christ has sown. We're harvesting all of this this grace, these promises given to us in our relationship with the Spirit of God. We're harvesting the uh, sense of the presence of God. We're harvesting illumination. We're harvesting comfort. We're harvesting love and joy and justice and mercy. We're harvesting generosity and freedom. We're harvesting life with the Holy Spirit and life on the mission of God. We're harvesting all these things. And I think that Amos 9 ends for us today with a kind of an invitation. Planting, reaping, enjoying what we have is hard work. Now let me just ask you this. Who wants to work hard? Who wants to work hard? You want to work hard if you want life. Right? You want to work hard if you want life. Blessings are work. If I asked you, what are the top three or top five or top seven biggest blessings that God has given you, it would probably be the same list as, I, as if I said, what are the top three or five or seven most challenging things God's ever given you? What have been the most demanding things? The things that God has used to grow you most? They're probably the same thing. Right? Imagine that you get a late 90s model, diesel supercharged, set, what is the, 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 you know, flux capacitor and the whole thing. Imagine one of those rolls up. What are you going to do with it? Yeah, well, are you going to leave it in the garage with the door closed? And just like I, when people visit and you give them tours of your house and say, yeah, this truck, and you're driving a jalopy? Right? You're going to put the wheels on the road. You're going to use it, and it's going to require work. You drive like a crazy person. You're going to have to put new tires on there and, you know, do the, get the flux capacitor swapped out and all that kind of stuff. 
and you guys know this, enjoyment is sweaty. What's something you do that you really enjoy, that really nourishes you, that isn't involved? Grace engages you. And too many Christians think grace means I can just ignore it. That I've gotten a good thing that I can just not pay attention to? I think joy means, who cares? What joy comes into your life and you say, who cares? This isn't the way normal things work. It's not the way that the blessings that have come to us in Christ work either. What grace will do in our lives is going to create in us the opposite of the conditions to which Amos is writing. What the book of Amos is designed to do in Israel and to do in our lives today is to create the opposite conditions to which Amos was trying to address. So instead of idolatry, we're worshiping the Lord our God. Instead of injustice, we are devoted to loving our neighbors. Instead of immorality, we are faithful and true. I want you to see this morning, I want us to see together the extent of the judgment that has passed you over and left you untouched. A total, exact, final judgment has passed over and not touched you. And Jesus paid it all. And so with that vision, we get another vision, and I want you to see the extent of the blessings the blessings that have come to you, are we going to leave those blessings untouched? Let's be those who honor our Savior, who celebrate these gifts, and like Israel was called to be, so also us, to be those who shine His light, to shine His light with gratitude and grace. So let's pray for a moment. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And There's two components to this sermon because there's two components to Amos 9. And I want you, first of all, to think if any of these sins, any of the sins in your life are hanging over your head. If you have trusted in Jesus, ask Him to help you to be free of those, that guilt and shame. If you have not trusted in Jesus, let me encourage you to ask Him to save you from those sins. So do that work and then ask Him to lead you into blessings and give you energy and joy for the harvest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we look to You and Your strength for this moment. Lord, all of us are sinners full of sin and we struggle with guilt and shame as is healthy and normal. But we also struggle with letting it accumulate. Letting it be absorbed into our identity and into our spirit. When Jesus Christ has taken the judgment that all those things deserve. So Lord, help us to look to Him. To look to Jesus and draw strength. To live in the, in, in the joy of that freedom. And Lord, we also look to You and to Your strength for the harvest that You have presented us with, for every spiritual blessing in heaven that has been made ours through Jesus Christ. Lord, there's so much 
good. So much grace that you have given us and you've given us to enjoy. We struggle with discomfort. We struggle with weakness. We struggle with loss, with fear, with pain. But you have given us what we need in Jesus Christ, in His Word, and through the Spirit. And more. And more. So, Holy Spirit, would You lead Your people now? Help us to be free in the freedom that Christ has set us free for. And would You strengthen us as we turn our hearts and minds to You? Would You strengthen us for what You've called us to do? And if we're in a season of harvest, would You strengthen us for that? It's long days and long hours and hard work. But let it be done, Lord, with joy, with obedience and humility, with patience and grace. So watch over this Word, Lord, in us and watch over Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.